Chapter Forty Nine of House, Garden, and Field by L. C. Meol. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Industries of Wild Bees. A. The Burrowing Bee. Almost any day in early summer, I can amuse myself by watching the industry of a burrowing bee, Andrina, which abounds in my garden. It is a little smaller than a hive bee, but so like it in general appearance that it might easily be taken for one. The observer's attention will probably be first roused by seeing the Andrina enter the ground, or it may be by seeing the little heap of sandy earth which it throws out of its hole, for in early summer this bee is a great excavator, and throws out earth many times exceeding the weight of its own body in the course of a few hours. In dry, sunny April days, the work gets on fast, and a mound of fresh earth and sand forms close to the hole, which is almost big enough to admit a lead pencil. The bees often leave their burrows and come back again. When they return, their hairy bodies, especially the hind legs, are dusted all over with pollen, and the microscopic examination of this pollen shows that they have been visiting sallows, dandelions, gooseberries, and other early flowering plants. We cannot see how the burrowing bee combs off and collects the pollen. That is done in the dark. No lump of pollen, such as is conspicuous on the hind legs of a hive bee or a humble bee, is ever seen upon the andrina. The pollen, mixed with honey pumped up from the crop, is stored within the burrow. It is not difficult to explore the burrow if plenty of time is allowed. A straw or other flexible stalk is useful as a guide. The narrow gallery bends this way or that to avoid stones, runs level or descends according to circumstances, branches occasionally or frequently. The species differ in this respect. Andrina fulva, which I have chiefly observed, makes burrows which seldom branch, and attends a length of from a foot to a yard, though not descending more than a few inches into the ground. Sometimes the bee happens to break into the deserted burrow of an earthworm and follows it for a while, but the earthworm generally works too deep for the bee, which seldom gets more than a few inches from the surface. Towards the further end of its gallery, the bee excavates one or several cells, which are nothing but short and slightly enlarged side branches. In these she lays the burdens of pollen and honey brought back from the fields. One cell will contain a rounded pellet, as big as a small pea, and upon this a single egg is laid, which quickly hatches and yields a white grub, whose whole store of food is the pellet provided by the mother. Neither the galleries nor the cells have any special lining. Male bees are now and then seen hovering about the entrance to the galleries, but it was long before I learnt to know the males of the species, which is so common in my garden. They are smaller than the females and differently colored, and seem to spend most of their time about the flowers, gathering honey or pollen, but storing none. Many andrinas make their burrows near together, and a sloping bank or garden walk will sometimes show scores or hundreds of holes within a few square feet. The bees seem now and then to enter the wrong holes, for they creep out again in a minute or less, with the pollen still dusting their bodies. I do not, however, believe that they really make a mistake. The bee on entering finds an intruder in her burrow, a parasitic bee of which more will shortly be said, and being of peaceful disposition, she waits till the way is clear. There is no reason to suppose that several bees ever share the same burrow by mutual consent. When the cells are stored with honey and eggs, the bee shovels part of the earth back into the hole, makes up the mouth, and then probably sets about a fresh hole, as we may infer from the small numbers of eggs in one gallery and also from the fact that the excavations are carried on for many weeks, while a single gallery can be excavated, stored, and closed in a few days. The advantages of the burrow are obvious enough. 
The andrina gets a tolerably dry place in which to store her honey and eggs, and some degree of protection from ants and other predatory insects, as well as from the innumerable insect parasites which are ever ready to appropriate either food or larvae for the maintenance of their own young. The protection against parasites is, however, far from complete. When the mother bee visits the flower, the hairs on her body are often grasped by the minute larvae of stylops, which lurk there for this very purpose. She unconsciously brings home an enemy, which will enter the body of one of her brood and develop there, causing pain and distortion, though not necessarily death. Also, there are cuckoo bees, not unlike the burrowing bees in general build, which cannot dig or collect pollen or lay up stores of food. They find out the burrows, enter them, and lay their own eggs in the cells. The larvae hatched from these eggs get the start of the rightful owners, and it is not the offspring of the industrious burrowing bee, but of the cuckoo bee, which ultimately enjoys the store of food. Though the cuckoo bee is quite unlike an andrina, it is allowed to enter the burrow without opposition, and the andrina never learns the fate of the brood which she left, to all appearance, well provided for. B. The leaf-cutting bee. I will next describe the maneuvers of another solitary bee which I have lately had an opportunity of studying. We not unfrequently find that the leaves of trees and shrubs in our gardens have been mutilated in a singular way. Oval or circular pieces have been removed by clean cuts, which look as if they had been made with a pair of scissors. What creature cuts bits out of the leaves, and how is the cut made? A bright summer day given up to the inquiry will probably answer these questions. You will, if fortunate, see a bee, very like a hive bee but rather stouter, hover about the tree, settle on a leaf, and cut out a piece with her jaws. While cutting, the bee clings to the piece which is to be detached. She cuts decisively and rapidly, doubling the fragment between her legs as she proceeds, and using her wings when the support begins to fail. Then she flies off, carrying the piece, which may be oval and a half an inch long, or circular and a quarter of an inch in diameter. The bee will probably come back again and again, get more bits of leaf, and fly away with them. If your garden is of the modest dimensions common in cities, you will be probably unable to see where the pieces of leaf are taken to. But in a large garden, you may find it possible to follow the bee and see her enter a hole, either in the ground, or in a wall, or in a tree trunk. Then you will be able to learn something more. After many journeys, each resulting in the acquisition of a single bit of leaf, the bee changes her occupation. Her journeys become longer, and she returns home with no load that you can see. After some days, she will leave the spot altogether, and then curiosity will naturally lead you to examine the hole and see what it contains. Carefully exploring, you will find in the hole a cylinder, perhaps four inches long, made of bits of leaves wrapped one round another and pressed tight against the wall. If the tube is quite fresh, the bits of leaf will uncoil when removed, but if several days have passed since they were introduced, the tube will keep its shape. Gently unwrap part of it. You will find that it is carefully formed of several layers of leaves, and within are six, seven, or more cells arranged in a row and filling the whole length of the tube. Each cell is thimble-shaped and consists of leaf fragments arranged in several layers. One end is a little narrower and rounded, the other end is wider and closed by a neat lid composed of two or three circular leaf fragments. Beyond this lid is a shallow open mouth which receives the end of the next cell. The cells are all made separately, and though they fit the outer tube closely, they are not fastened to it. It is therefore possible to unroll the tube and leave all the cells intact. Within each cell is a mass of honey and pollen, with an egg or a larva on the top. 
Further study brings to light many more details. The leaf-cutting bees are of several species, and each has its own preferences. Some prefer one kind of hole, others another. Some prefer rose leaves, others lilac leaves, elm leaves, or horse chestnut leaves. They have their favorite flowers, too, which they visit for honey and pollen. The leaf-cutting bee, which is most plentiful in London gardens, finds or makes its burrows in the trunks of oak, elm, and mountain ash. I have no proof that the leaf-cutting bee ever makes her own burrow. It generally lines the burrow with elm leaves and gets its honey and pollen from thistles. The bee, which cuts up the leaves of rose trees, generally makes its holes in brick walls or in the ground. The leaf fragments are not cut at hazard. Each has a shape suited to the place which it is destined to occupy. The outer tube is more roughly shaped than the cells, which are beautifully exact. Every cell contains from nine to twelve separate pieces, sometimes many more, and though they are secured neither by stitches nor glue, they keep their shape perfectly. The fitting of the circular lids, each made up of three or four bits of leaf, into the mouth of the cell is an excellent piece of work. The bees often employ the disused burrows of earthworms, but are careful to stuff up the lower part of the tube with fragments of crumpled leaves, lest an enemy should enter from below. Some employ the holes excavated in tree trunks by beetle larvae or wood wasps. If the hole is wide, they will arrange their cells in two or three rows instead of a single row as usual. When all the cells are filled, the bee makes up the entrance with crumbled leaf fragments and comes back no more. The grub consumes its store of honey and then enters upon its winter sleep, pupating in autumn or spring, but never emerging until the following summer. I can only glance at a number of other contrivances employed by other solitary bees. Various species of osmia utilize stacked reeds, burrows of other insects, and even snail shells for their stores of food. Some bees employ the dead branches of blackberries, which are easily hollowed out because they are filled with soft pith. One species makes a collection of cells out of chewed leaves. Another not only employs empty snail shells, but conceals them in a dense mass of sticks and straws. Mason bees build up tubes of small stones, which they fasten together with a secretion which sets hard like cement. Helictus makes a rude comb of cylindrical cells out of clay and lines them with hardened saliva. The carter bee, Amphidium, strips off the woolly or cottony covering of certain herbs and lines her burrows with it. Other carter bees imitate the species of osmia, which chooses snail shells for its nest, but subdivide the cavity by partitions of resin. Dasypoda improves on the methods of Andrina, and instead of leaving a conspicuous mound of loose sand and earth at the mouth of the burrow, disperses it with her feet, lest it attract the notice of a spoiler. C. Humblebees Let us next consider the economy of the humblebees, which show a distinct advance upon the simple arts of the solitary bees. In early summer, we see big humblebees flying abroad and at times exploring the holes in a stone wall or a bank of earth. The large black and yellow humblebee is probably Bombus terrestris, which makes a subterranean nest. The moss-carding bee, B. muscorum, is much smaller and has a reddish thorax and a yellowish abdomen. The fierce B. lapidarius, which makes its nest among loose stones, is about as large as B. terrestris, but has the end of the abdomen reddish-brown. The moss-carding humblebee, B. muscorum, does not usually burrow, but makes its nest on the top of the ground in meadows or among trees. 
Here they are often cut through by the scythe and picked up by the mowers. There is no readier way of getting to see these nests than to visit a meadow that has just been cut. A nest may be five or six inches in diameter, of low rounded form, with arched roof, and concealed by moss, ferns, grass, or dead leaves, which are carefully arranged so as to give the outside as natural an appearance as possible. A narrow gallery, covered with moss or the like, and often several inches long, guards the entrance. The moss which covers the nest is never brought from a considerable distance, nor do the humblebees ever carry it through the air. They push it backwards towards the nest with their legs, the head of the bee pointing away from the nest. With their legs also, the bees card or tease out moss or other vegetable tissues, reducing them to the condition of fine threads, which are employed to conceal or to line the nest. Several bees have been seen to work together in carding moss or passing it towards the nest. If the nest of the moss-carding humblebee is dug up, which may be done safely, for this bee is very pacific, there will be found a lining of coarse wax no thicker than writing paper, and within this an irregular mass of egg-shaped cells, some open, others closed. They are of different sizes and of different shapes, and rather rudely fitted together. Some contain larvae and pupae in different stages of growth. A few contain honey only, and these are deeper and open at the top. Other cells will perhaps contain pollen saturated with honey, and lumps of the same substance often lie about the cells in a disorderly way. Schoolboys are often clever at digging out the nests of this and other humble bees, and the taste of the wild honey, mixed perhaps with a good deal of earth, is to many of us a familiar recollection of our boyhood. The nest of Bombus terrestris, one of the commonest of the burrowing humblebees, are lodged in underground cavities. It is believed that the deserted burrows of small quadrupeds, such as voles, are taken advantage of to save labor in excavation, but the humble bees may often be seen working at their own holes or shaping and trimming holes which they found ready-made. The red-hipped humblebee, B. lapidarius, makes choice of a cavity in a loose heap of broken stone or in a bank. The plan of construction adopted by Bombus terrestris is much like that of the moss-carding bee. The cavity, or some part of it, is lined by a thin layer of wax, which encloses the cells. These may be few, especially in early summer. When the nest is most populous, a hundred or more may be counted. The early cells made by the solitary queen are comparatively rude and consist of lumps of pollen coated with wax and enclosing many eggs or larvae. The workers, when they appear, construct cup-like cells as big as peas, in each of which the queen lays several eggs. Then the cell is stored with food, pollen moistened with honey, and closed. The grubs which issue from the eggs consume the store of food and then require to be fed. The mother bee, or at later time one of the workers, bites a hole through the waxen wall and passes food in from her own mouth. The common cell, shared by six or seven larvae, steadily grows till it is as big as a walnut, and Pierre Hubert ascertained that the grubs break through the wax from time to time when the workers clap more wax on the spot and trim it neatly. As soon as the grubs are full-fed, they spin egg-shaped cocoons of whitish silk. The silken threads are often intermingled, so that several cocoons loosely cohere. When they perceive that the cocoons are ready, the workers remove the outer shell of wax. After the short pupal stage is over and the winged bees have emerged, the cocoons are seen to be truncated, a large circular hole having been made towards the upper end. 
the empty cocoons are trimmed, coated with wax, and filled with honey by the workers to serve as honey pots. They are deepened to increase their capacity by a rim of wax added to the lip of the truncated cocoon. Then the mouth is narrowed, but not sealed. Sometimes wax and honey pots are made of wax throughout, with no cocoon as a foundation. As many as sixty honey pots have been counted in one nest, and most of these may be full, but when many larvae are being fed, the store of honey runs low. The humble bees are much better equipped for pollen collecting than any of the solitary bees. The first joint of the tarsus of the hind leg is dilated, as in a hive bee, and its inner surface, the one turned towards the body, is closely set with short, stiff bristles, which are very useful in combing the pollen from all parts of the body. Just above the tarsus, and on the other side of the tibia, is a pollen basket, enclosed on either side by long, stiff, curved bristles. Captured humblebees will often be found to have a big lump of yellow pollen stored up in this basket. In one respect only is the collecting apparatus of the humblebees distinctly inferior to that of the hive bee. In the hive bee, the enlarged joint of the tarsus has the bristles set in regular transverse rows, and their efficiency in combing the hairs is thereby increased. In the humblebees, no such arrangement can be discovered. Humblebees employ wax rather sparingly either to line the nest or in the construction of their cells and often mix it with vegetable substances. Their wax is made in much the same way as in the hive bee. The bee begins by taking a good meal of honey. Shortly afterwards, wax begins to exude between the joints on the underside of the abdomen and also on the back. In the hive bee, the wax is secreted in the form of rather large, thin plates, which can be detached by the nipper, a kind of forceps formed by the meeting of the tibia and tarsus of the hind leg. In a humblebee, the wax is much less coherent and does not form plates, but a kind of dust. No nipper is therefore required to detach it. At the base of the tarsus of the hind leg, we find, in place of the lower lip of the nipper, a short, stiff brush, which is apparently employed to sweep out the granular wax as fast as it is formed. Rayamur was mistaken in saying that the wax of humblebees is formed out of pollen and that it cannot be melted by heat. No doubt he mistook for wax the lumps of pollen moistened with honey, which are so often found in the comb. Three, perhaps four kinds of bees can be found within one nest in the height of summer. There are large females, which may be called queens, perhaps also smaller females, whose unfertilized eggs regularly produce males, workers, which rarely lay eggs at all, and males, or drones. The workers, unlike those of the hive bee, are not distinguished by any external peculiarities of structure. The numbers of the family are far inferior to those of the hive bee. A humble bee's nest, which contained 300 individuals, would be unusually populous. In spring, a queen, which has survived the winter, begins by herself to found a new community. Having chosen a spot to her taste, which may be either a hole in a bank or the bare surface of the ground, according to the habits of the species, she constructs a rude nest or shelter, lays a thin plate of wax, and deposits upon it a small heap of pollen mixed with honey. Upon this, one egg is laid. She then builds up a low cylindrical wall of wax, joined to the basal plate. Within this, more pollen and honey are stored, and additional eggs laid. The sides of the cell are then carried a little higher, and at length the top is carefully sealed. Other cells may be added to the first, with which, however, they are only slightly connected. After some days, the larvae hatch out and soon consume the food laid up for them. The queen then pierces a hole in the wall of the cell 
passes her tongue in through the hole and feeds the larvae carefully, closing the hole when the operation is finished. The numbers of the family increase very slowly, for the whole of the labor has at first to be performed by a single individual, but the first brood which hatches out consists of workers, who relieve the mother of a great part of her work. After they appear, the queen spends less time abroad and lays eggs more frequently. The first cells are constructed as early as February or March and contain comparatively few larvae. A few weeks later, the number of eggs laid in a single cell becomes greater. The food supply is then less adequate, and this may be one reason why the bees hatched in the height of summer are of smaller size. It has been said that the cells of late summer never contain any food and that the grubs which they contain are fed exclusively from mouth to mouth. In autumn, special provision is made for the perpetuation of the race. New queens and a great many drones are hatched out. Egg-laying has by this time ceased altogether, and the rearing of new generations no longer employs the workers, which remain idle in the nest, seldom going out even to procure honey. The community does not long survive the close of the fine season. The nest, which is then devoid of food and brood, is deserted, and a few fertile queens, scattered about in holes in the ground, are the only humblebees which hibernate. It has been found that the economy of the humblebee is materially affected by climate. In the short summer of the Arctic Circle, they are said to produce no workers. The nests are very small, and we might almost say that the social state has been lost, the bees having returned to the solitary condition. On the other hand, in Mediterranean countries, the humble bees often survive the winter in considerable numbers, and the nests appear to be tending to a permanent state, such as is more fully attained in the hive bee. It was long ago stated by the old naturalist Goddard that in the early morning a sound is heard to issue from the nest of a humble bee, which he supposed to be a call, rousing the inmates of the nest to work. This statement, after having been long regarded as a fable, has recently been confirmed by several observers. It is found that the humming noise is due to the rapid vibration of the wings, and that if the bee told off for this work should be removed, another at once takes its place. The purpose of the sound can only be guessed at. Humblebees have many enemies, which sometimes devour not only the honey, but the bees as well. Among the number are ants, predatory flies, conops, caterpillars, rats, field mice, and weasels, to say nothing of schoolboys and mowers. There are many parasites, too, which sponge upon the nest, the most curious being the cuckoo bees, which, though unable by lack of special structures to collect pollen or make honey, are suffered by the humble bees to dwell in the nest and to take their share of the good things which have been stored up. Many solitary bees also are infested by their own species of cuckoo bees. The naturalist who has been able to acquaint himself with the habits of a solitary bee, such as Andrina, a humble bee of any species and the hive bee, will find himself in a position to make some interesting comparisons, or even to trace what may be called the growing civilization of social insects. He will see how bees may gradually associate themselves into permanent families, and families into little nations. He will see how the community, which in its simplest form is short-lived, is gradually enabled to last through more than one season, while in the more complex societies, provision is made for the storing of food, a regular succession of generations, and the occasional emigration of new swarms. He will see how bees which were solitary and consisted of ordinary males and females only developed a caste of small females able to lay only unfertilized drone eggs, 
how these small females undertook more and more of the rearing of the young broods and became at last the workers and governors of the community. Social feeling, of which there could be none among the solitary bees, appears in all communities which include the offspring of more than one mother, and becomes intensified until in the hive we observe a division of labor, and a subordination of private interests to the general good, which can only be paralleled in ant communities. Hardly less interesting is the steady improvement in the working implements of the bees, side by side with the growing complexity of their social state. Hairs, which are the only means which a solitary bee can employ to bring loose pollen to its burrow, become supplemented by pollen combs and pollen baskets. The mouth parts become prolonged so as better to explore the recesses of a flower, more efficient in suction, and more neatly folded when not in use. The rude materials employed for the constructions of solitary bees, such as sand, clay, or chewed leaves, become worked up with resin, vegetable wool, silk, and wax, and at last replaced by them. With wax comes the possibility of an architecture economical of material, space, and labor, even to the theoretical limit. Close and long-continued study of insect communities is not work for young naturalists. It is more profitable for them to start many inquiries and pursue each to the point at which the difficulties begin to be serious. The delight of pressing some one inquiry farther than it had hitherto been carried is not for them, but the future may have it in store for this or that individual. We should never forget that there may be a Rayamur or a Darwin among our pupils. End of chapter 49